when I became chief operating officer, I sort of looked around and was like, well, I don't think of women's issues as a thing, but actually there aren't any women and there's no one in a better spot to tackle that than me. (laughs) So I think we have to get into this. You know, why aren't there any women? Why aren't there? And so the more I started getting into it, the more it's like um, a structural challenge for our industry is to try to figure out how to be, how to create a good home for women that are good at the kind of work we do. Because there are plenty of really smart, quantitatively oriented, good leaders that are women. And so why are they not choosing to be in construction? Hey, Construction Nation. Welcome to Lead with Trust. I'm Sue Dyer, and I've been on a three-decade journey to figure out how to make sure our construction projects succeed and produce some extraordinary results. My trusted leader journey has led me to work on over 4,000 construction projects worth over $180 billion. In this podcast, I'm here to teach you everything I've learned. One thing I know is that it starts with the leaders of the businesses and organizations that come together to build a project. If that's you, let's get going. Construction Nation. Today on Lead with Trust, we are doing another part to our series on bringing women into construction. And today we are going to have a chance to listen in and learn from Mary Tykert, the president of Tykert Inc., a 135-year-old heavy civil company that also sells aggregates and some other things she's going to share with you. But you're going to want to listen to this episode carefully and maybe more than once because she really gives a lot of insights and specific ideas on how to bring more women into the industry and others because we really need to have more people in our workforce. And she focuses a lot on the operational side where, you know, the businesses of construction really make money. But there's lots of other places for people to be in the industry, but this is our place that's the most challenging. So I think she has great insights. So let's listen in. So we are in for a treat today on this episode. We have Mary Tykert. She is a superstar in the industry. And uh, in California, Tykert is very well known, 135-year-old business, and she is the CEO. So welcome, Mary, to Lead with Trust. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I'm so happy that you're part of our Bringing Women into Construction series because I really think that it's the answer we're looking for with we don't have enough people to man our jobs. There's a lot to that. We're missing out on a lot of the workforce the way we are now. And there's so many paradigms around why not when it's like, well, why not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I I know that uh, you are president at at Tigert. So tell us a little bit about your role there. Sure. Okay. So currently I'm president of Tiger Inc., which is a construction and materials company that was founded in 1887 by my great-great-grandfather in California. So I'm the fifth generation of my family to have the privilege of leading it. 
Uh, my uncle, Judd Riggs, is actually the CEO and I'm the president. So we I have this fantastic partnership with my best ally here on who, someone who really has my back and cares about my success, which I think is key for everybody, men and women in this line of work, is to have someone that really is um, advising you and watching out for you. So as far as my current job, construction, materials, and energy and utilities are Tigert's three branches of business. We've always built the infrastructure that our state needs. And so back when my great-great-grandfather started it, he was a foreman for the guy who invented expansion joints. So those little cracks in the sidewalk that you all step over, that was high tech back then in the 1880s. And so um, when they started building sidewalks in San Francisco, they rode away to New York for someone that knew how to work with this newfangled artificial stone paving. And so Adolf moved out here and started building sidewalks. And so we've always done the infrastructure that our state needs. It's obviously grown a lot past sidewalks, you know, in the early 1900s when the state started building roads because the horseless carriage was coming along. Tykert had state highway contract number two, which was to connect a county seat. I think it was like five miles for $12,000. It was a pretty, uh, pretty efficient contract that way. So we started building roads. And then in the 30s, when the state was flooding and we needed better water management, Tykert started building levees. In the 40s, when we went to war, Tykert built airfields. And then when all of the GIs started coming home, Tykert started building subdivisions because that in the, in the day was one of the ways to solve um, housing for the folks coming home with subdivisions. So we've always been really involved in the infrastructure that our state needs. Um, in the last 10 years, we've started Tykert Energy and Utilities, which is a group that does gas distribution, electrical work, um, undergrounding, solar. So all the stuff related to energy is clearly part of our state's future infrastructure need. So the fun part of my job is that it's um, got a lot of variety to it. There is a centerpiece of trying to make sure that we're sending everybody home safely every day. And that's like a non-trivial ask. And so part of it is going around and actually, you know, going to job sites, meeting with crews, seeing what are the things that we're doing that um, we can do better that would help people continue to keep their head in the game and go home safely. What is training that people need? What are ways that they need different tools? So part of it is just listening and spending time with people. Part of it is running a good business because that is the way we've lasted 135 years is that we make good stuff and then we charge more than that cost us. Like that is the basics of our business. And so trying to make sure we're doing that in all of our different lines of work. Um, and then the third piece is really kind of staying involved in our industry and making sure that um, construction is like a really significant part of California's economy and the world's economy, really. Because everything that, if you think about it, everything we walk on or live in or work in is built by somebody. And so the construction industry is vital and having a voice together and solving some of our problems like workforce development together is really critical. And so also part of my job is staying engaged with our industry and helping make sure that the, you know, 4,000 men and women that work at Tiger get represented fairly along with the other 60,000 people that work in construction in California and that we're really um, moving the ball forward every day for all of us. That sounds fantastic. So I know you were born into construction, but... How is it that you came to decide to really be a part of the family business and moving up the ladder as you have? Oh, that's a great question. And so when I, I never thought I was going to work here because not much of my family has worked here. We've only really, probably since about the 1950s, we've only had one or two family members in the business. You know, some could say that's part of our success is that, you know, normally it's just, um, it's one of the risks to family business is having people that aren't that interested or engaged be a part of it. 
So a nice thing about only having one or two people is everybody's been really passionate about carrying the torch forward. So I felt super honored to be asked to join. Um, I had actually been doing other stuff. I got out of college back east and went to work for a technology consulting firm as part of Accenture, like they do management consulting now. Um, I went to business school and got my MBA. And then I worked for a strategy consulting firm in San Francisco and was working at Apple Computer, having a perfectly nice time working in technology. And then my uncle asked if I would consider coming back to join the family business and learning it. So the family piece really has to do with affection for this line of work and saying, I'm so fond of what we do. And I really like the people. But coming into it from Apple, I knew nothing. And so I started out at the boots and potatoes ground level working in the quality assurance lab. So I was a QA tech when I first got to Tykert, which was cool. You know, you don't really always know that there's such a thing as a quality rock. And so I learned a ton. You know, one of the essential things that I still think about is the definition of quality in our business is what the customer wants. Like that's quality. And so it doesn't mean like, you know, you have like gold plated rocks. Someone's not going to buy them because that isn't what they want. Even if you think that's a better one than what we previously had. So really focusing on the customer and what is it that they're looking for? And that is what a spec is. And so really useful starting in QA. And um, the main thing I would say is I've had about 13 jobs since I've been at Tykert. So from QA, I went and was an assistant plant manager at one of our rock plants for a couple of years. And that was cool because, you know, you're doing everything from daily maintenance record checking to figure out what your production planning is to staffing shifts and crews working with the safety advisory committee on what do they think might be better at the plant, dealing with customers that are happy or unhappy about whatever, um, supply issues with like, why is the oil kind of expensive or hard to get or what happened with the propane tank or whatever, you know, the real actual bread and butter of what we do for a living. So one of the essential two things I would say about that, one is an essential piece of advice I have for everybody coming out of school, everybody, every young person is to make sure that you really understand what your company does for a living. I think sometimes one of the things that I feel really grateful to my uncle for is starting me out in what we really do, which is we make rocks and we sell them. And then we do construction services and we get paid for them. And that's what we do. So I spent probably 13 years doing that. You know, after the rock plant, I was in aggregate sales for a while and had my customer list that I go around and call on and do, do quotes for and bid work for. Um, and then I moved over to construction and I worked in our takeoff group, which is also called engineering services. So that's the folks who get the plans in every day and get out a highlighter and figure out, well, I guess nowadays it's on CAD. When I was in it, you get out a highlighter and figure out, okay, how many feet of sewer pipe and how deep is it? And how many yards of dirt, you know, doing all the math so that someone can actually go bid the job. Um, and then I was an estimator for a while and actually bid jobs. And then I was a project engineer. So got to work on highways and I'm really proud still of the jobs I worked on. It's kind of fun driving through work that you did yourself, you know, like sitting there at three in the morning waiting for the concrete truck. Is a totally different experience. And then I ran Tiger Precast. We had a precast group for a while and also Tiger ReadyMix before becoming chief operating officer in 2013. So I had done a whole bunch of different jobs here. And so going to the point of what do we do for a living? You know, I really have a, a kind of gut frontline understanding of how we, what we do every day and what we have to be good at because there's some of this stuff where, you know, you think it's hard or easy, but until you've done it, you don't know which parts are hard and easy. And so actually being in it and doing the work is really critical, I think, for folks to understand what they're doing. And also so that at the with the job I have now, I really know what people are telling me. So they're explaining something that they're doing. And it's, you know, it's not like I know everything, but I do have a general sense of whether what they're saying makes any sense or not. Because you can say, okay, here's what I can see why that would happen. Or I can see why that's a challenge. 
or that doesn't really sound as hard as you're making it sound. So let's not really spend any more time on that. <laughs> so it's useful to have a little bit of a kind of um, reality meter that says, here's how we actually work. So I would definitely advise everybody to spend some time on what you do for a living. I think that's so wise for everyone, even even if you're a designer. <laughs> so, yeah. So yep. you know that, uh, you know, how your design actually is going to be played out in the field. Yeah. Well, thinking about how does your job connect to how the company makes money, I think is really key. So there's a lot of jobs that are really critical to the functioning of a business, you know, that maybe, for instance, like our billing clerks, you know, if we didn't send the bills out, we couldn't stay in business. And that's important. But as far as if someone wants to rise up the ranks and run something, then really understanding what do we, how do we make money? You know, I'm in the role of how do we make money? You know, we make stuff and we sell it. So really knowing how does your company make money and doing that job, I think is a really essential piece of being able to lead it. And partly it's what I was describing in terms of your own knowledge. Um, And part of it's your credibility. You know, I think there's a lot of folks. Well, fortunately, I'm blessed with a lot of folks throughout the company I got to work with in really in the trenches, you know. So once you've like been on a project team with somebody trying to solve a customer's problem, you have a different relationship. But even the people I didn't work with, I think, have some regard for the fact that I worked in the trenches for so long. And so being able to have people want to follow your flag also comes from doing the work that your company does for a living to make money. Yeah. So they trust that you know what you're doing and they're willing to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know that uh, you're a woman in an unusual role uh, for a large company. So tell me a little bit about what your experience has been. And then we'll switch over and talk a little bit about your thoughts on bringing more women into the industry. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so my category of construction is heavy civil. So we do roads and streets and underground, as well as I sort of mentioned our materials business which is um, we're one of the 13 largest producers in the country of aggregates and asphalt. So we have a lot of rocks too. Um, But so those things don't have a lot of women in them. There's a few more women that are in like vertical construction. There's more women who build buildings than do the roads and streets. So for my category, which I know the most about, the average for the country is there are about 6% women in operations. And so operations goes back to what I was saying about doing what your company does for a living. We are blessed with women in lots of really important back office jobs like HR and finance, and uh, they do incredible work every day. And if you count that headcount altogether, we're about 35% women at this company. But going back to like, you know, women as project managers and superintendents and estimators, project engineers, um, safety, quality assurance, the basic jobs that are involved in us making money, that's about 6% in the industry and about 9% at Tykert. And I used to really not think of that as my issue because I think most of the women in our business who are successful, the reason that we are is because we're doing the job well. And it doesn't really have a ton to do with like, you know, oh, I'm a female and this, that, and the other. Like, that's not really the most important factor. So if you look around and think, who are my peers? You know, you look around and think, oh, the other project engineers are my peers or the other estimators are my peers. And it's not about the other women are my peers because that's just one of the many dimensions of who we are as human beings. And we all just have to do our job well every day. So that's essential. But the more I kind of got along and when I became chief operating officer, I sort of looked around and was like, well, I don't think of women's issues as a thing, but actually there aren't any women and there's no one in a better spot to tackle that than me. (laughs) So I think we have to get into this. You know, why aren't there any women? Why aren't there? And so the more I started getting into it, the more it's like um, a structural challenge for our industry is to try to figure out how to be 
how to create a good home for women that are good at the kind of work we do. Because there are plenty of really smart, quantitatively oriented, good leaders that are women. And so why are they not choosing to be in construction? So what I did was start a women in operations group, which is, I think it's about probably seven years old now, or we call it WEO for women in operations. And basically just looked through the org chart and like called up all the women that were in the org chart as anything like a PM, superintendent, whatever. And so out of about, I think right now we have around, around 750 like administrative people, which it means not on cruise. And of those people, you know, there were, there were, I think there were at the time, maybe like eight or 15, there were like a tiny number of women that were doing operational jobs. So we all got together for lunch and I said, so do we have anything to talk about? You know, is there anything even different for us than for the guys? Is there, you know, we could have a topic or we could just have lunch and have a nice lunch together, enjoy each other's company. And the thing that's kind of fun about women in our industry is, you know, most of us are kind of gritty and have some backbone because by definition, we wouldn't be in it if we didn't. So like one of the women was like, well, I don't know, our safety vests fit differently. That's all I got. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. But I'm like, but look around the room. There's not that many of us. So let's talk about like, do we have anything to talk about? So what we, the two things we figured out, one is that we do have some common experiences as women in this industry that are not common to the men. And so we thought, well, one thing is it's nice just to have the camaraderie of getting together and swapping stories because some of them are amusing and sometimes we can help each other out or provide advice. Um, And maybe we could get some, you know, speakers or training or something, something, and, you know, start thinking about what this could look like. So we started having a quarterly get together and we started out just with lunches and gatherings. And we had people come in that like, um, you know, women from other companies where I wanted to kind of hear their stories too. I think one of the things that I think is common about my story is that, you know, starting at the bottom and working hard is how everybody gets anywhere is you just really have to show up and work hard. Um, But the part that's not common is that I had the opportunity because it's my family's business. And so I wanted them also to hear from people who like didn't come from a family setting, but also did the same thing, which is show up early and work hard. And they, you know, are successful in other companies. And so we sort of had some speakers come in and then we sort of like did a few topics that aren't just for women, but I think were kind of fun. Like we did one on um, what do women wear in construction? Like, what can we wear? Because there's a part where, you know, you could wear, you know, your Carhartt pants and your, you know, men's polo shirt, like all the guys do, or like all the swag that ever gets issued in this line of work. But, you know, we don't all want to do that. And so one of my friends had started her own style firm. And so she put a lot of thought into it and came in with like, you know, here's like jean trousers. So you could wear jeans that still look like trousers and they're not like your Saturday night go out on a date jeans. And they're also not like the baggy guys jeans. Like here's some ideas. Here's where you could buy them. Here's some pictures. We all kind of talked about what looks professional to us because professional includes being able to go out on a job site with your safety boots on and have a good conversation with a foreman or superintendent and also being able to show up in an office. So that's a non-trivial thing and something you can wear a safety vest over. So, you know, can't really wear sleeveless stuff because that would be ridiculous with a safety vest. So there's a lot of considerations that you might not have if you were in banking or retail. Anyway, so we did want to, we've done that kind of stuff too. We did had a woman come in and talk about, um, you know, investing and how you should do some planning to be like your own financially independent self by the time you retire. So a lot of different topics. And then uh, the next piece from there was doing a strategic planning session with the ladies and saying, do you guys want to do something bigger? Like, do you want to somehow make a difference on how we get women in here? Because everyone is doing this in addition to their day jobs. And so um, all of us, our main job is to be good at what we're doing for a living. So if you're, a good, if you're an estimator, you are supposed to be a really good estimator. 
And then if you have extra time to come be in WIO or come to lunches, then cool. But your main job is to be a really good estimator. So I said, do you guys have time and inclination to do more stuff? We can on a, you know, let's see if we do. And so we did like a little strategic planning session with our VP of strategic planning and went and talked about who are we and what do we want to do? And what we came up with was two things that were really interesting. One is that the place people actually wanted to spend their discretionary time, recognizing that this is like in addition to their other work. Um, one was recruiting and outreach and making sure that women that are thinking about different careers would think about construction. Um, and then two is mentoring and figuring out how do we get more formal about the mentoring process. You know, I alluded earlier to my uncle having invited me to join the business in the first place. And so having someone that really is able to give you good advice as you go um, is really critical, I think, to a lot of people's success. And that's not just about women. And that's not just about our industry. I think having mentors is pretty well established as a good success thing. So those were the two topics that we wanted to focus on. And so the other piece that struck me was like talking about who we are and how did we get here and saying what drew us into this. And at that point, I think we had doubled. We were up to like, you know, 20 or maybe 25 women. But every single one had either a, a family member in either construction or farming. Every single one. And thinking that is so interesting. And it makes you think, well, maybe part of this is because we already weren't like worried about being outside or working with big yellow iron or, you know, getting dirty or wearing boots. Maybe all of that seemed familiar because we had family members that were in some profession that involved that. Um, and again, farming was just as common as construction because it does not like, you know, it's not like you had to know how to build a road, but you did have to feel like it's okay to be working outside and to get up early and to be like getting dirty. Like those are important pieces that made this not seem scary or intimidating to these women. So one of the thoughts that triggered was maybe instead of like boiling the ocean and looking for all the women in the world to want to get into construction, one thing we could do is really think about the daughters of the people that are already in this business. So in California, there's about six, last I heard, there's about 60,000 heavy civil construction jobs. So it's a lot of people working in construction. So they have as many daughters as sons, if you think about it. So maybe a place we could start would be um, families of people who already don't find this intimidating. And again, this is extrapolating from a very small base. This is just the people that we have here at Tigert. But it was just interesting to me that every single one of them had that in common. Um, so what we started here was take your daughters to work day. And as probably everybody listening knows nowadays, it is take your kids to work day. So when I was a kid, it was take your daughter to work day. And I'm like, well, you know, I know it's take your kid to work, but honestly, we need daughters. So I'm going to start with take your daughters to work day. And besides we always the one that volunteered to run it. So I'm going to go ahead and do just girls. <laughs> Um, and the first year, that's what we did. And it's a funny thing about construction, because it's not that easy to bring your kid in. Because, you know, the operators of our equipment, like a lot of times there's only one seat. And so how would what would your kid even do if you're sitting in a cab of an equipment? You couldn't invite them to sit next to you like you could if you had a car. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a safe environment for children. So the way we organized it was that um, anybody in the company that wanted to could bring their daughter into the office. And then what we would do is keep them for the whole day, take them out to visit a job site, take them to visit a plant, you know, have people come through and talk about their jobs and what they do for a living so that the girls could get some sense of it. Um, we had some activities like, you know, we had the girls kind of do some visioning about their own future, you know, think about what their own skills and interests were, write their parent a letter about things that they learned. So we had a whole day of activity, basically. Um, so the parents didn't have to worry about the kid being on their job site. But we put all the girls on a bus and took them out to visit job sites and gave them all hard hats and vests so that they could get off and do a job site tour. They went out and did a plant tour. 
you know, tromped around in the dirt. And um, it was a really awesome experience. And in fact, the main pushback I got was a lot of the guys were like, well, my son wants to come I'm like, all right, next year we'll do take your kid to work day. <laughs> uh, but it was actually there were there are two women working here who actually came from that first daughter's day who were like, you know, kind of got intrigued and found somebody that was willing to take them under their wing as like a summer intern. And we have two women still working here, which is pretty awesome. So I think part of it is um, modeling and just saying, you know, here's some examples of what you could do. In that case, also, they could see there's other girls that are thinking about the same stuff. Everybody in it, by definition, had a parent that is in this industry. And so that was that first criterion there. But they were awesome, you know, and everybody had a good time and it was a good experience. And so I think in a broader sense, that's also a piece that our industry can do more of is try to figure out how to make this approachable for kids. Um, One piece that was really touching to me was how much the parents wanted their little girls to participate. Like we had a gentleman who runs a a blade for us down in Fresno, like he operates a motor grader every day. He drove to Sacramento from Fresno to drop his daughter off at five in the morning so he could drive back and like be there for his shift. I just thought that's very moving, you know, that somebody cares that much about their daughter and their industry and wants them to be a part of this. So one thing we've done in subsequent years all the way up through COVID, and we got to get it back going this April, is to um, have them at all of our offices. So that first year, it was just a corporate. So someone would have to drive all the way to Sacramento and drop their kid. Wow. At this point, we have them in all of our construction offices, which we have, I think we've got like nine right now. We just opened one in San Diego not too long ago. So we've got about nine construction offices, and all of them have a take your kid to work program so that people don't have to like necessarily make this big journey to headquarters to be part of it. But I think the essence of it still is saying that it's our job as a company to help these parents kind of introduce their kid to the industry because the work itself doesn't lend itself to girls being out there. So that's kind of a long way of coming back to what does WEO do, which is that we did focus on, okay, outreach, what are we going to do? And now we do a lot of different things. We like have, you know, some, we have a speakers bureau where some of the ladies have some interest in going out and talking like when a college or career fair wants someone to come speak about it, like that they have some talking points and some slides and some stuff to go talk about it. We've gone out and done like uh, job fair stuff where we'll do hands-on things like with the Girl Scouts. And, you know, one of the fun things that one of my, one of the projects I think is kind of fun is like, we'll go have them make asphalt. And so it's like asphalt cookies. So they're using ingredients that are cookie ingredients, but they're making a mixed design like we would an asphalt. And then, but the end result is a cookie instead of asphalt bricks. So just different ways to try to get young people. And in our case, we're focusing on girls, but in some cases it's classes or young kids and that's all totally fine um, to really get some interest and excitement about this industry, have a little bit of a glimpse of it. So it doesn't seem so strange and foreign and uh, kind of start thinking about it. So I think one of the pieces kind of that our, that our industry can do more of is all this modeling and saying, let's, let's make this accessible and help you understand what it is. Um, because long-term, the other part of this is that it isn't really just the job of women to do this because our whole industry going back to where we started has a really, we have a lot to gain from having more women be interested in doing this because the bigger our talent pool is, the more selective we can be and the better quality employees we're going to have. And so as everybody could just do the math on if you've got, you know, two people applying for a job or four people in one case, you get a little more opportunity to pick exactly what you want. And so it's in all of our interest to have women get interested in this business. And so a piece that I've sometimes encouraged, you know, I, I've been the beneficiary, not only of good mentoring, but a lot of really good allies, like all those 13 jobs I had, I worked with awesome men who were interested in me being successful, gave me good advice and support, you know, participated in my projects. So being an ally is a really key job for all of the 
people from more traditional demographics, you know, all the white men in the world have the chance to be a great ally to women and minorities and pull people along. And so that's the other part that I've encouraged them to think about is like, it isn't just my job to bring women in. It's actually all of our job to expand our workforce and make this a great place for great people to work of all different kinds of backgrounds. And I think that's more and more kind of um, the case with our workforce. I think there's always been people with great hearts and inclinations. You know, I feel super blessed to work with my uncle because he's just fundamentally like that. And my dad's like that. You know, it's one of the things I love about our family and our family business. Um, But there's a lot of just people all over the place that are like that. And And I think each generation, there's more and more. Like, you know, the last few years of project engineers, we recruit every year from colleges, from construction management programs and civil engineering programs. And there's more and more classes where the men and women don't really think of it as a thing, which is pretty neat because they'll have more women in a graduating class where the boys would have always worked with girls like the whole time they were in grade school or high school. So they don't really think of it as big of a thing as compared to like my dad's generation or even my generation where it's a lot less common. So that's kind of neat. And you think, well, some of this might be like changing itself because the less the guys think of it as an issue, the less the women think of it as an issue, the more it's going to be comfortable. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah, making it normal, I think, is a big challenge. Yeah, Uh, so, so interesting. I am so excited. I have worked an entire year on this and finally it's ready for you, Construction Nation. It's my trusted leadership course. It's now open for enrollment. It will transform the way you lead your construction projects. It's based on my Wall Street Journal best-selling book, The Trusted Leader. And it will take you on a journey to drive out fear and level up trust so your project teams can do things that just would not otherwise be possible. It's a self-study six-module course that allows you to learn and apply immediately what you've learned so you don't have to wait for results. You'll also not be alone because we're going to be meeting for 12 months every week with group coaching, and they'll be recorded if you can't attend. That's okay. And there's many, many other things that you're going to get. You're just not going to be alone. This is transformational. So you can sign up today at sudico.com. Enroll and join me in the course. I look forward to seeing you there. Now back to the show. Clearly, you're creating an atmosphere that allows for uh, long-term thought on bringing people up, but also concrete things that really any business leader, a construction leader could do uh, so that we could bring more people into uh, construction. I mean, it's been such a problem. And now every job I work on, it's, it's a huge problem because not only can't we get materials and equipment and uh, we also don't have enough people, yeah. and just not enough bench. And somebody gets sick and you're you're just down. We've got to bring us more people in. I read uh, in one study that we have a half a billion jobs right now that are unfilled. So that is, yeah. and then in um, the average age of a construction worker in the United States is 57. Mm-hmm. And the average time they retire is 61. So we only have a few years until we're going to lose 20% more. Man, that's a problem. So, um, yeah, it's, it's you know, and, and women are 50% of the population and, you know, and other people too. 
but just get people to understand how awesome construction is. And there's lots of places to be in construction, depending on your personality and your desire. Yeah, lots and lots of opportunity. Well, that part is one of the pieces that I think is most interesting about what we do is, how, to your point, how many different roles there are. Because, you know, for instance, the people that want to be an estimator are totally different personality types than someone that wants to be a superintendent. And so some people want to like, you know, be a, a leader of people and have a lot of folks that they're working with and be out there every day. And other people love like the math and engineering and the understanding how to make a paper plan come to life and what it would cost to do that. So that like the wiring, all different kinds of wiring are needed to make a successful business. So I think people knowing what those pieces are is really key. Yeah. And and also as a leader, knowing that you need different people for the different tasks that you need down for whether you're a supplier, you're you're performing construction, you're you're doing design. There's so many areas uh, that you can work. It's it's That's huge. True. There was an article I was reading I liked. It was it was about being a good boss, but one of the lines they had was um, good bosses play chess, not checkers. So thinking not all the pieces are the same. And saying, yeah, that's true. And thinking out far enough. Totally. That is totally. I see that's really a trend that you're, you're, you know, when you have a company that's been around for 135 years, you probably tend to think more long-term, but uh, a lot of folks still just think job to job when they're smaller Yeah, and they think, you know, season to season uh, when they get a little more advanced. And so they're not thinking quite as long-term maybe in. And that part is interesting. I was trying to think about what's your purpose. You know, like I feel really blessed to get to stand on the shoulders of the people that came before me because they got us a long way down the road. So we're being a, having a legacy and a tradition is already part of what we had by the time I even started in QA. But I think anybody that's starting a company also has the opportunity to think about what's my purpose and what difference do I want to make to the world. And if part of that has to do with leaving a legacy and making something that, like, you know, whether it's your kids or somebody else's kids, that like another generation is going to carry forward that sort of lends itself to some long-term thinking about, you know, really having a strong skeleton to build off of, basically. What is your foundation for this company? And that has everything to do with like, how are you going to treat people? And what kind of culture do you want? And um, what kind of value do you want to create for your customers? Like, if you really have those thoughts, kind of getting past the job-to-job thing, to your point, it's um, kind of they go together. Because once you have that foundation, you're doing great jobs. But how you're doing them is maybe what makes it distinct. And I think the decisions you make are different because I know when I started my business like 37 years ago now, I decided that I wanted it to last at least 100 years. That's cool. And so you make decisions and you hire people differently than if I was just, oh, I'm just going to make maximize the amount of money I could make and then just get out of it because I wanted, I needed to be able to pass it off to someone and for them to then be able to pass it off to someone else. So you have to structure it that way and always embed that into the business. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's an important one. If, if you could wave a magic wand that would overcome some of the barriers for women, and I know you guys have really kind of studied this. It's awesome. What, what would you do? What, What kind of thing would you want? Well, I think there's two really like a external one and a, a more personal one. So the external one would be that there still are a legacy of men in our business that don't necessarily assume that women can do the same jobs as men. So one of them would be to get that out of the way. And so I don't, like I was saying earlier, I think a lot of the younger generation doesn't have that assumption. 
but there's still people that are kind of like, you know, um, I, and the more I talk to women, the more I think this is a common experience of women in our business is where guys don't assume that they know that much. And so they'll have people, you know, when I was a project engineer, I would have, you know, a customer or an inspector address themselves to like whatever guy I was standing there because they would assume that would be whoever's in charge. Or, you know, there was one of our project engineers stories at lunch one day was about, you know, a guy, a supplier who was bringing stuff on site and wanted to talk to whoever was really in charge instead of her. I mean, just silly stuff where you think this isn't a thing that happens in like, you know, banking or something where people are more used to having women around. So one of them would be getting rid of the last vestiges of people who don't make the assumption that women are every bit as capable because there's a few of those left. I think they're retiring out, which is cool. But um, and not everybody in those generations is like that. But getting rid of that would be the first thing. And then the other piece, which is like kind of a longer, deeper, harder one is somehow we have to figure out what we're going to do about kids. Because like childcare is such a big deal. And having access to childcare is something that's hard, I think, for everybody. Like that's a topic for working women in all kinds of professions. Um, and in construction, it's super hard because of a lot of reasons. Like one is on crews that the shifts can change. So maybe one day, you know, one week you're starting at eight in the morning and the next week you're starting at two in the afternoon. Or maybe you've got a nighttime job. So someone's going to take care of the kids. You know, I was really blessed because... When my kids were little, their dad took care of them. And so I could get up at five in the morning and go to work or I could, you know, take a customer out to dinner or to a show and we'd be out late or whatever. Like I could, I had some flexibility. That's like what made it possible. And I think, you know, there's some people who arrange it with like a multi-generational family where maybe they have their mom helping out or their mother-in-law or a sister or something because it is actual. And some people can get nannies and hire people, but I think that's kind of tough. Partly it's expensive and partly it's because the hours are so random and the demands are so weird and someone has to take care of the kids. So I think that's a part that is really a structural challenge. And so, you know, we see all the time in construction and I'm assuming probably most industries have a category where there's a lot of women who, once they have kids, don't come back to work. And I think part of it's because it's, how do you do it? Like, how can you do this? It is really non-trivial. And so We've sort of done some brainstorming and tried a few little tiny experiments here. You know, people certainly, a benefit of shift work is you don't have to work all the time. And so there's some roles where you could say, well, this week I can do it and that week I can't. So it is possible that in some cases people can just control their own schedules and that can help. When I was a project manager, I thought one benefit is that you're, you have to get your job done, but it can be in whatever order you want. You know, so I would, when my son was a baby, I'd had my son when I was working at a rock plant. But so his dad would take him to like Gymboree where they do like those little kid exercises things. And I would just meet them there at lunch and I'd go like play with my kid for an hour at lunch and then go back to work. So it is possible to organize your day so that you can do some stuff, but you still need to have a, um, a network of people that are helping you with the kids. So, and, you know, for a while we were working on, could we have some kind of like a babysitting service or something that was like emergency childcare? Because everybody that works has to come up with a daytime plan. Like someone has to like get your kid to school and take care of them. The problems are really when it's like super early in the morning or if it's after hours in the evening or if it's unexpected. Like I think those are the three places where construction gets wonky relative to other industries for women. And so we started with like, you know, could we have like an on-call service where like supposing that your day was running longer than you needed it to, that you call them up and they could be like background check people that would come take care of your kids. And then we did like some field testing with people that actually had kids who were like, I'm never going to do that. Like, all right, well, maybe not. So we haven't, we, I don't know where we are with that. You know, we still, we're, we're at the beginning stages of even trying to solve it as a company. I think, and as a society, it's one of the challenges that still exists is how are we going to get the kids really quality taken care of when their moms are at work? 
And if their moms are working hours like ours, what are we going to do? So, you know, I do the two hurdles. And that second one is would totally take a magic wand at this point. If everybody could have outstanding home child care, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, and it it looks different for every every family, yeah. um, depending on who's working when. And uh, it's uh, the unpredictability is probably the biggest challenge of it all. But there are jobs in construction that are a little more predictable. I mean, and, and say what you the world you're in, it's more, less predictable. Well, the crews are the least predictable. Like working on a piece of yellow iron, or if you're a laborer or an operator, that is the hardest. And actually, there's only 1% women on crews in our industry. So that's even worse than operations. But you're right. Like if you're an estimator, you can pretty much predict your schedule. Like you know what day your bid's due, and it's usually at two in the afternoon. So it's not like it's crazy. So I think estimating is one of the jobs you could you can manage your schedule better. Um, project management, you mostly can manage it. Like sometimes you'll have an emergency and something will happen. But more of it is like what I described with my kid at Jamboree is that you can kind of organize your day and say, well, I have to go out to the job site. I have to meet the customer. I have to get to my kid's dentist appointment. I have to go to the PTA meeting. I have to get my RFIs in, <laughs> you know, right. so maybe you're working until 10 at night and maybe you like, you know, had dinner with your kid and then went, got back on your computer after they went to sleep. So you can organize your day if you're a project manager more as well. Um, superintendents is, I don't know, you know, superintendents is a combination of those things, depending on your role. But yeah, so you're right. There's jobs where it's easier to control than others. Be interesting too to see if there could be a mentoring path, like yeah. that could take you through, so that when you're in those years of where you have your own children, there's a path for you, and then when you're done with that, then you there's another path or something. Well, you know, we just kind of have to be addressed. It's funny. It's a funny timely point because, like, I think it was like last week or maybe it was right before Thanksgiving, where somebody said we need to start a like a mom's mentoring group here because I mentioned how how much our wanks have grown of women, but most of it was women coming out of college, and so now some of them are married and having kids, and so now we're like right in that window. And so one of the things is okay, you know, you tiny handful of women that are older and already did this, like, let's get together and find out, like, how did you work this stuff out? So yeah, that's clear and present is that we have to do some mentoring for younger moms. Oh, that that'd be awesome. I think there's so many valuable lessons to be learned on what didn't work and what didn't yeah, work. Yeah, totally. And which parts were hard and you just need somebody to sometimes complain to, you know, like when my guy, when my son, I mentioned I had my littler one when I was working at a plant, but I was breastfeeding him. And so I had to have a breast pump and I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? And I was fortunate because I was at a plant. And so I wasn't like roving around on job sites and the plant is a stationary facility. But when I told my boss, I'm like, I need to get a lock on my door because I'm going to have a breast pump. It's like, oh, my God. What? You know, because <laughs> but the upside is he was his heart was in the right place. And he's always been a good ally to me. So he's like, you know, get her a lock right away by lunchtime. Get her, You know, so on the one hand, he's uncomfortable with the topic. And on the other hand, he was totally in it with me. Like his heart was in the right place. And I think that's one of the pieces, you know, going to what are some of the circumstances of being a woman in this industry is sometimes you have to, like, absorb other people's discomfort. <laughs> Because you have to be like, all right, yeah, this is a tough conversation. But the upside is I'm getting what I need. And I know this person cares about me and me being successful. And he's going to make it happen. And he got a lock on my door by lunchtime. <laughs> but well, so having somebody you can talk to about all that stuff is sometimes. And, and sometimes you have to help them learn how to treat you. You know, yes. this, this is an uncomfortable situation, but it's just a normal thing. That is, a And you point. have to help them understand Okay, you're uncomfortable, yeah, but you're doing it, and you're and you're doing what we what is needed, and 100%. and then the next time it happens, it will be oh yeah, we know how to deal with that. 
Yeah, totally. That is totally true. It's funny because what's um, that's required of women right now is just to be able to help people understand. You know, I have I'm wearing this little pearl necklace today. I gave this to all a little necklace like this to all our women in operations last year with a little note that says no grit, no pearl. <laughs> we all will have to have a lot of grit right now. And I think someday our industry will evolve to where people already know stuff. I will say that one moment I was so proud of my senior leadership team in construction is I was like coming into a meeting where two of our senior guys had beat me to the meeting and they were sort of doing the pre-meeting chit chat and they were both laughing about something. So I came in, I'm like, what's funny? And they said, well, you know, we're trying to get a nursing mom's space set up in our office. They're like, and the facilities person thought it would be okay just to put like, you know, brown paper over one of the windows and that would be all we needed. Isn't that hilarious? And I'm like, ah, that's so awesome. You know, like... (laughs) Comparing their hearts. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like the current generation of guys who like has a real imagination and understanding of what would be a comfortable environment for a nursing mother. Like comparing that to my experience of like a super awesome old school guy who was like freaked out by the conversation, let alone by what are you going to do about it? Wouldn't have his own ideas. I'm like, man, we're evolving. You know, we're getting there. So I'm proud of a lot of the guys coming along who understand and want this to be successful. And heck, they have kids. So they have some appreciation for it, going back to being good allies, even if it's not their personal experience, they can recognize it and think, I want this to be successful and I want this person to be successful. And here's the thing I know is needed and I'm not going to freak out and it's normal. It's normal. I think that is so cool. So I do think we're evolving. I do too. You know, and and I've been in construction for 40 years. So uh, there were, there were no women around and, um, what I love about construction is that if you show up early, do a good job, and they can depend on you, they will die for you. Yeah, totally they agree. Hundred percent for you. Yeah. Yep. Totally so agree. It's, yeah. It's, I just I just love this industry. I love the people who are attracted to it, and I love building things. So, so parting That's advice cool. to other owners contractors, designers, um, subcontractors, what would be your advice to them? And maybe the unions? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as far as getting more women on board, I think the centerpiece, the two centerpiece topics, one is to really listen and see what are people saying as far as what they need or what they want or what feels comfortable to them. So really listening to what are the actual topics. Um, I think I think we're getting past the part where you can assume what you, you that you know other people's problems. I feel like our whole society in general is getting better at realizing like everybody has their own space and perspective and we can't just assume it. But I've been in plenty of settings where folks think here's the problems and then they set out to solve it. So really listen to what is actually the situation. And then two is that old advice that like your system is perfectly designed to produce the result you're getting. <laughs> Like whatever is happening, that is how your system is producing results. And so if you don't like what's going on, if you don't have enough women or you don't have enough of, you know, that's who we, where we focus. But really, there's a lot of demographics and minorities and so forth that we're trying to attract more of. But if you don't like your outcomes currently, then trying to think of what could you change? You know, like we're trying to cast our net in a different pool and say, are there different places we could recruit from? Are there like non-traditional paths that we could try to attract someone out of? Are there ways that we could do outreach where people are meeting us now? So trying to think of how can I change the system to produce a different result is necessary because keeping doing the same thing and hoping it will come out differently, we all know that's not really a good game plan. So I would say keep listening and uh, think about what system would produce the result that you are are setting out to get. I think that's absolutely a brilliant way to end this because I think that is where so many people are locked into. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, we're doing we're doing what we've always done, but we're, we don't oh, have yeah. what we need. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's kind of famous in our line of work to say they're not out there. I'm like, there's women out there. There's minorities out there. There's a lot of people out there. It's up to us to go find them. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mary, for being here. I really appreciate it. Totally. It's a good topic. Thanks for asking me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. If you did, will you do me a favor and please forward this episode to anyone you think can benefit from today's message? We're here to serve you, Construction Nation, so please give us your feedback and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And your honest review, hopefully five stars, will be much appreciated. For over 100 years, construction has been a combative, adversarial place where leaders try to motivate their team to perform. Every leader who learns how to build their business and projects on a foundation of trust is going to reap the rewarders of greater productivity, attracting the best of the best, enjoying your business more, and doing things that you thought were impossible. If you want to learn the secret to not having claims on your projects, I've got a brand new free masterclass for you. It's called No More Claims. And I really excited about this because I think it will help you tremendously in starting your trusted leadership journey. And it's free and you can sign up today at sudico.com slash masterclass. That's S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash masterclass. And that's all run together. M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S. So, well, that is a wrap for today, Construction Nation. I can't wait until I get a chance to hang out with you again in our next episode.